Thank you, Jack. You're a hard man to say no to. But, friends, you've got the handout. We do need to keep moving things along. I'm not going to cover everything extensively, but I do hope it is a good good help for the discussions which will follow. And the aim here is that as we look at this, discuss it together, talk about it as couples for those of us who are married, that it will serve to advance the gospel and build our church and bring glory to Christ. That has been my hope and prayer and Jack has summed it up so neatly. Friends, the issue of burnout in the ministry among the clergy is a significant and very real one. Middle of the front sheet of your handout you'll see a quote that comes from the Australian Psychological Society about three lines down from the top. Now they're quoting here generalised stuff and it's hard to exactly pin where it comes from but they're saying and I realise this is somewhat dated that around one quarter of church leaders are experiencing burnout as an extreme or significant issue whilst around half are potential candidates for burnout. In 2013 the Australian ran an article called Work Burnout Rampant Among the Clergy Again, it was difficult to pinpoint their sources but they quoted from the Anglican Church and the Uniting Church and I read just one sentence. Up to 75% of ministers, pastors and priests suffer from stress-related issues. So that's three out of every four. Up to 25% have taken stress leave or suffered serious burnout. If you've seen this book, and I'll quote some others along the way, Zeal Without Burnout by Christopher Ash, I trust that if you've seen it after today, you will get it if you haven't already got it. It is valuable, it is helpful, it is short, it is sweet and it is stunning in what he says. He says uh, in the foreword, uh, stories from the edge and so on, he speaks about the fact that in the United States, it is estimated that approximately 1,500 per month leave the pastoral ministry due to burnout, conflict or moral failure. This book was published in 2016. It's relatively new. 1,500 per month. That's huge. Possibly not helped by an unhelpful perspective which you may or may not have come across from Christmas Evans, a British evangelist. And it's not my intention to be critical but rather to say that unless we're careful, things like this, without being properly nuanced, can create more harm than good. And he said this, I'd rather burn out than rust out in the service of the Lord. A better approach, I humbly submit, would be that None of us really want to burn out or rust out but we want to finish the race. And brothers and sisters, today I come and would put before you the challenge, the challenge that at the end of your ministry, whenever that will be and the Lord may well have you uh, that soon happening or that being a long time off, that at the end of that, that you will finish well. That's the challenge and my question to myself and us, will you finish well? Will you not be lacking in zeal? Will you not have grown weary and lost heart? Will you have kept your spiritual fervour 
and still be serving the Lord, even if in a different capacity and in a different chapter of our lives. That's our challenge. What exactly is burnout? I'll just read it off to you. That's why I've printed it there for you to refer back to later. Burnout is a work-related condition combining, sorry, comprising three symptom clusters. Firstly, emotional exhaustion. Secondly, depersonalisation. In other words, there's a distance between, a disconnection from those who you ought to be close to. Firstly, your spouse, for those of us who are married, but also our sessions, our co-pastors, our people. And thirdly, there's a reduced sense of personal accomplishment. We're pedalling harder, we're working longer, but humanly speaking, if I may put it this way, we're being less effective and we are more dissatisfied. Just underneath that, in the second quote in Finishing Well in Life and Ministry, Mills and Parrow define burnout this way, the point at which a pastor, church leader or missionary gives up, unable or unwilling to continue in the ministry. We can think of Elijah in 1 Kings 19 after the encounter with the prophets of Baal and having heard the threats of Jezebel, he said, and I'll translate this rather freely, I've had enough, take away my life, I might as well be dead. I've never been there, I hope never to get there. But I have had times some years ago where things were at a low spot. By the grace of God, I never lost my faith and I thank him for that. And the only good thing coming out of it has been that he has shown me much about myself, about my ministry. He has shown me the value and the blessing of serving him and reminded me that I'm not Superman, I'm not the Saviour, I am just a man. I'm a messenger boy, but a gloriously privileged messenger boy and I hope by his grace to finish well. How does a person get to that point where they're feeling at least on the slope of or at the point of burnout? Friends, I don't know if you've had it. You may do it in your churches still. We used to, but don't anymore. Shake hands with the people at the door after the service is over. It was not uncommon for people to say to me, John, your hands are cold. So cold. And of course you laugh at often and say, you know, cold hands, warm heart type stuff. And I never picked up the sign. My body was telling me something. My adrenal system was flashing lights and I never understood that. And I'd like to talk just briefly and I'm going to read, so please excuse me for doing that, but... It comes from a book which our Pastor Church Relations Committee has recommended to us quite some years ago and I found particularly helpful, although I didn't remember everything that I'd read, called Going the Distance by Peter Brain. And this, this title just sums it up so well. And he speaks here, let me read for you if I may. He makes the point that stress cannot be avoided. What is important is our response to stress and the way we manage our lives so as to avoid unnecessary stress. 
He makes a distinction between good stress and bad. He writes that sometimes we feel only bad stress, that is stress caused by difficult people, circumstances or confrontations is potentially damaging. But he says good stress caused by things we enjoy can be even more damaging because we don't see the need to avoid it or alleviate it or relieve ourselves of it. And if you love preaching and find that at the end of the day you're just absolutely knocked out, that's an example of that and it was for me. A stressed person is like an engine that can only function in high gear. The engine keeps racing, everything is done at a frantic pace, rest is impossible even if the need is acknowledged and eventually the whole engine blows up. Our body cannot continue to function with high levels of stress. Something will give way, illness will follow. And it's here I want to mention about our adrenaline alarm system. Adrenaline is the hidden link triggering our body's responses. He makes the point that the heart will beat faster, digestion will be speeded up, hormones will be released to prepare us for dealing with an emergency or an issue which the psychologists talk about as fight or flight. God has so so wired us and made our bodies so wonderfully that when we are faced with a challenge, an issue, a particular circumstance, that it rises to meet the need and we can by his grace. But the problem is that too much of a good thing for too long, unrelieved, will eventually poison us. This is the alarm system triggered by stress. Its purpose is to alert us to a threat so we can be better equipped to deal with it. But difficulties arise when we are threatened over and over again or when we are constantly challenged or when we live in a constant state of emergency or when we regularly preach. There was a time prior to going to Launceston which for us was in February 2006, that I preached, generally speaking, twice a Sunday, most Sundays, except when there was a five-Sunday month and we would have the Sunday off. It's not that I didn't like it. It's not that I didn't want to do it, but it became increasingly difficult to do. I didn't realise that I was actually flooding my body with adrenaline and not taking steps to release all of that so that things could get back to normal. He writes, The best way I can illustrate this is to imagine an elastic band. If it is stretched between your thumbs and released, it returns to its normal relaxed position as soon as the external force is removed. The body's stress response is also stretched, in quotation marks, whenever subjected to an emergency or a demand, and we would say, or a preaching commitment. It auto-returned to a normal, relaxed state when the demand is removed, but if the elastic band is stretched and then held in an extended position for a long time, a long period of time, it begins to lose its elastic properties. 
develops hairline cracks and eventually snaps. Eventually, the elastic band will not just remain stretched but break and it will break in one of those other areas like our heart, ulcers, brain or lungs. The fight or flight trigger was meant to get us over the occasional dangerous emergencies of life and not the everyday ordinary normalities of life. And when pastors who enjoy their work fail to recognise the need for balance and rest, they easily find the work addictive. And it's interesting that Christopher Ashe speaks not so much of workaholics as zealaholics. They love it. I loved it. I was hooked on it. I wanted to just keep going. And I had to admit and repent of that many years ago. And that didn't actually stop the problem continuing because I just didn't recognise it at the time. For pastors, an added danger is the temptation to justify workaholism by spiritualising the addiction as zeal. And brothers, I wonder how many of us are zealaholics. You have a look at the diagram over the page. I trust it helps. Where a good thing that is meant by God in the way he has wired us to help us meet the demands and the commitment of preaching week by week can become a bad thing if not handled well. Too much of a good thing will push us past what is called here the area of best performance and put us into a situation where there is anxiety, unhappiness and we are on the way, if not already on the edge of burnout. Brothers, some warning signs. There are some flashing lights on the dash of our lives and could I also ask you to note here, I'll mention some references at the end, that Murray Capel has written two excellent articles in February and March of the RTC Monthly. If you don't have them, please do get them and please do read them. In the second one, he deals with church culture and how that can contribute to burnout. I won't be touching on that today. I simply don't have the time available. But let's have a look at some of these flashing lights. I will simply just mention these in passing. The first is our feelings and that is you are emotionally drained and exhausted. The second is our relationships. There is a sense of distance and disconnection already mentioned. The third is our satisfaction level. Again, already mentioned, you work harder, you work longer and with a sense of ineffectiveness and dissatisfaction. And I might and must also mention here how our intimacy level. And I'm speaking about, to my brothers who are married, the connection we have with our wives. I realise that there are seasons in our lives. I realise that there are private, personal and medical circumstances that apply to some, if not all of us. And I realise that all, all of us at times as ministers may well have found ourselves caught between a rock and a hard place. Leo and I spoke about this yesterday and I found his comments so helpful. The minister's on the spit. You're caught between the demands of your church and the demands of your wife. But I'd like to... <laughs> 
I'd like to ask you, brothers, in terms of your intimacy, how would you rate your intimacy with your wife on a rate of one being very poor to ten being very good? And if I can be even more blunt, and I'm not just talking about this, when was the last time you had sex? And are you happy with that? Do you want that to continue? Is that how you honour God, advance the gospel and build the church? You're not answerable to me. I don't want to see hands up or have you talking to me about that. I have to deal with our situation. But if I can't speak about this with my brothers in Christ, where can I? Please talk about it together, firstly as couples. And if brothers, we need to talk about this a little bit then I believe we should. Some biblical perspectives. These come from a book by Ash, the one that, the small one I've quoted, the short but sweet book, Going the Distance. Again, please get it. Friends, you've all done funerals. I've done some just recently again. One thing that faces me at a funeral every time is that we are dust. And that is the premise of Christopher Ash's whole book. None of us is Superman. None of us is the Saviour. We are at best dust. We have the treasure of the Gospel in a jar of clay. 2 Corinthians 4. And sometimes that clay jar, that clay pot is very, very cracked. And it's because of that dust-like perspective which is foundational to Asher's book that he draws four important conclusions. Firstly, We need sleep, but God does not. Some years, by the grace of God, I was helped by a Christian GP and she introduced me to something called sleep hygiene. I'd never heard of that. We need sleep, but God does not. We need Sabbath rests, but God does not. I don't particularly want to talk about the Sabbath and how you understand that, but we can if we have time elsewhere. You know what I'm talking about, the one day in seven, the need for rest, for refreshment, for renewal, etc. We need that. And to think we don't is to simply fly in face of the facts and to deny the reality of what Scripture teaches something you simply do not do Sunday by Sunday as you preach. Friends, we need friends, but God does not. We need inward inward renewal, but God does not. And we'll look at a section in Mark just about that. I'd like to look at how we tick. We've just seen it, those four helpful perspectives from Ash. I'd like us to learn from Jesus about priorities. Can we open the Scriptures? Mark chapter 1, a day in the life of Jesus. Mark chapter 1, a day in the life of Jesus. We all know that Jesus was a busy man and here we see it, verse 21. They went to Capernaum and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. 
Just then a man in their synagogue who was possessed by an evil spirit cried out, What do you want with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Be quiet, said Jesus sternly. Come out of him. The evil spirit shook the man violently and came out of him with a shriek. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, What is this? A new teaching and with authority. He even gives orders to evil spirits and they obey him. News about him spread quickly over the whole region of Galilee. As soon as they left the synagogue, they went with James and John to the home of Simon and Andrew. Simon's mother-in-law was in bed with a fever and they told Jesus about her. So he went to her, took her hand and helped her up. The fever left her as she began to wait on them. That evening after sunset, the people brought to Jesus all the sick and demon possessed. The whole town gathered at the door and Jesus healed many who had various diseases. He also drove out many demons, but he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. Before we go to the next verse, I have a question. What time did Jesus get to bed that night? He's taught, he's healed, he's cast out demons. He may well have been at the situation where he is what is sometimes called peopled out. And if I've understood other scriptures correctly, the healings for Jesus were also times when power left him. The woman with the bleeding touched his cloak and he felt power leave him. There is something draining about the ministry. It does not appear to me, and I'm, I stand to be corrected if that is the need, that when he healed it was not just a matter of bam, 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 but it actually took its toll on him. And we haven't yet spoken about the encounters with the demons. And my question is, what time did Jesus get to bed that night? I don't know. I just know this, very early in the morning while it was still dark Jesus got up, left the house and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. It was a priority for Jesus. He was too busy not to pray and I want to be honest with you and say if I try this at the moment if I get up when it's very early consistently to pray firstly it won't go real well and secondly it won't do me much good. It won't be good for me where I am at the moment and it certainly wasn't good for me to do that some years ago because my doctor said to me your best sleep will come between 6 and 9am. 6 and 9am and you've probably read the sleep theory stuff that the REM sleep, the stuff before midnight, that's the most powerful. Maybe it is but I can testify to the fact that if I stayed in bed earlier it just did me a whole lot of good. That may not be you. We're not all the same and thankfully God has blessed some of you with incredible abilities and the opportunity like some of our politicians to be able to 
exist and do well and function and be amenable with only minimum hours of sleep. If I try that, it won't be pretty. But what we must all strive for is this priority. Jesus was too busy not to pray. And somehow we have to seek that. Because if the perfect, sinless Son of God who had an unbroken and wonderful relationship with his, with his Father was too busy not to pray, there has to be a lesson in there for us if we want to finish well. And I'm sure we do. Secondly, let's have a look at us. I've got this funny acronym there, Syara, and a verse from Mark 6, uh, a quote from Mark 6.31. The setting is Jesus has just sent out the twelve. They've been preaching, they've been healing, they've been driving out demons and they come back and they're full of it. They are so grateful for what has been going. And they come back and they find Jesus but he's not alone. And because Jesus, uh, so many people were coming and going out, they did not even have a chance to eat. He said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get, get some rest. Now here's the connection with the acronym. Some years ago when our children were all still at home, we stayed in a place over a weekend. We had a weekend off, I think at Phillip Island and this was the name of the holiday place and we saw that when you open the visitor's book and so on and it had this verse there and in the old King James these, this acronym stands for come ye apart and rest a while. Come ye apart and rest a while. And underneath that, if you don't come apart, you'll come apart. In other words, if you don't rest yourself, you'll wreck yourself. And that's what Jesus is teaching us. And what I would like to just help us grasp today, and Leo is big on this too, and Jack has prayed for it, the whole idea of self-care, intentional self-care. It's not about being soft or indulgent, and Murray writes this. It is the safety valve on the pressure cooker of our life, which is so bound up with ministry and service to the Saviour we love. Do you want to maintain an effective ministry over the long haul? Do you want to avoid needless burnout? Do you want to be zealous in your work and continue to serve the Lord well? Because if you do, it won't just happen by itself. You really have to think about and put in place a plan. Let's do that on page four. Oh, I'm sorry, it's my page four. <laughs> Putting it all together, a plan for self-care, that's brain's term, or sustainable sacrifice, and that's Christopher Ash. And all that I've been doing here is injecting a little bit of personal stuff along with guys who've been there, done that, and who I've benefited so greatly from. And the aim here, friends, is to prepare for a marathon and not a sprint. Now, strictly speaking, that doesn't work because marathon runners don't stop, rest 
refresh themselves but you know what I'm talking about and again I would just refer you to Murray Capel's monthly February, uh, RTC monthly February 27 article. He says it so well. We have to firstly look after our bodies and that means three things. Sleep, diet and exercise. Sleep, diet and exercise and if I may be so bold as I look at myself I think that exercise or at least consistent regular helpful exercise is a big blind spot. I'll leave that with you. Look after your body because if you don't it's going to go down and that means along the way if you've got a demanding pastoral situation a funeral or something where you have been stretched and we all will be if you give yourself time to refresh and revive because if you don't come apart you will come apart. You're not Superman. You're not the Saviour. You're just dust. Secondly, learn to say no. I'll leave you to read what Murray has written I want to quote something from Kevin DeYoung in his book Crazy Busy. Jono and I, my co-pastor, did a sermon series on this not last year, year before or based loosely on this and were struck by the fact that it hit a chord in so many of our congregation. Kevin DeYoung writes about the killer P's. The first is people pleasing. The second is perfectionism and the third is posting. People pleasing. Have a look at that diagnostic question. Have I got that on your notes? No, I haven't. I'll read it for you. Who is this for? Why am I doing this? Am I trying to do good or look good? Can I refer you to Paul Tripp's New Morning Mercies? A very helpful, encouraging and at times very uh, difficult to manage book. He writes on his October 3rd, 31 entry about spiritual fakery and he simply makes the point there, I'll read you two applications he makes, a craving to be known and respected can actually masquerade as a commitment to ministry. A craving to be known and respected can masquerade as a commitment to ministry. And building your own ministry empire can masquerade as a commitment to expanding God's kingdom. Brothers, the line between pride and true humility is a very, very fine one. And I simply ask us to examine our hearts and to see if if we are people pleasers and to seek the grace of God because we need it if we are to be in this for the long haul. Secondly, perfectionism. There is a sin not listed in the scriptures but one which I had to recognise in myself and you won't see it written in your Bible as I've mentioned. It's the sin of 100%-ism which I had to repent of. By nature I like to dot my I's and cross my T's. By nature I love things in a church service if we're going to gather on a Sunday 
Make it worth people coming to. Don't be sloppy. If you want to run your business like that or that's how you tidy up your room or have your home, that's your business. But don't do it when we're in church. The sin of 100%-ism. And at times the bottom line is it's just that you want things your own way. If that's your bent, perhaps I can just share again, I had to repent of that because in the end it becomes a burden and not a blessing. It has its place. But like so many good things pushed too far, that strength becomes a weakness. I'm thankful I work with a, my co-pastor is not like this, he's more of a big picture type thinker and I've found that a refreshing difference. And the third P is posting. And Kevin DeYoung's big on this, I'll leave you to read what he says. And the bottom line is, do you have to be so busy on Facebook, on Twitter? And he asks this question and this was the title of one of our sermons. Is your screen strangling your soul? Is your screen strangling your soul? That's one issue, by the grace of God, I don't have to worry about too much. I was born in the wrong year. But be that as it may, I'm so thankful Jono's not here to, with his helpful comments about age and things like that. Um, we learn to say no and we have to remember the killer peas. Thirdly, enjoy time with God, time with people, time alone. That speaks for itself but you should read what Murray wrote. It will refresh your hearts. It did mine. There's a fourth one that's not there. It's from John Piper. If you go and Google clergy burnout in the ministry, you'll come across one of the Ask Pastor John things and this one's about burnout and I simply quote to you what he said out of six points and that's how he answers these things. Ask the Lord to preserve you from burnout. Pray for that. Psalm 16 verse 1. I'll leave you to look that up. A closing word. The setting here is the return of the 72 that even the demons submit to us and wrongly I said what I said before about the 12. That was incorrect but now you know the story perhaps. The 72 return and they are so taken by the fact they have been so used of God that even the demons submit to us, they say, and Jesus says this. However, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. And brothers, that reminded me of the privilege, the privilege of ministry. Not everyone gets to do what we have been called to do. It's a privilege. But there is a greater privilege as said so well by J.C. Ryle. Men forget that gifts without grace save no one's soul and are the characteristic of Satan himself. Grace, on the contrary, is an everlasting inheritance and, lowly and despised as its possessor may be, will land him safe in glory. My dear brothers, glory much in grace. Glory in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have that as your main thing 
keep the main thing, the main thing. And back to our challenge, how will you finish? Will you collapse in a heap? As so many have done. Will your marriage and your faith and your ministry be in tatters? Or will your marriage be strong and your faith be vibrant and your ministry in good shape by the grace of God even as you finish your part in that? I trust that together we will finish well. And brothers, there are some of us here who are extremely competent and extremely gifted. And no matter how competent and gifted you are, on this we can all agree that if any of us collapse in a heap, if any of us go down, there is a very real possibility that many of the good things we have done or started will come to a grinding halt. There will be a gap that is not easily filled. And quite apart from the effect that a burnout or something close will have on you, on your marriage and on your church, if you drop out of the race, if you don't go the distance, it will be a win for the enemy even if it's just for the short term. I recognise it's in the providence of God as we've been reminded again and again but it is a win for the enemy and I would ask us to be wise to give our attention to this to have some understanding of this and to encourage one another in this. The need is great the time is short we are ministering in a culture that is going down the gurgler. It is Romans 1 and the New Testament world all over again. And it is in that context, as challenging and difficult as it is, that the gospel took root and bore fruit. Churches were planted and the world was turned upside down. But it needed preachers it needed ministry workers. It needed everyone on the job. At best, we're only ever dust. We're clay pots that have the treasure of the gospel in a vessel that is sometimes rather cracked. What must we do? Can I encourage us together to do as Hebrews 12 reminds us that we will fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The one who for the joy set before him endured the cross, he scorned its shame and he sat down at the right hand of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and you will not lose heart. May you all each of you and those who follow you keep strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Thank you.